You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. All right. Welcome to Season 3 of Vernacular Podcast. Yeah, we're really excited to be back. We enjoyed our little break. We did some traveling, or at least I did. I went to visit my sister and brother-in-law and Esther's cousin, my niece, and our new nephew, who was born at the beginning of February, and we spent a week with them, which was really fun. And Zach bachelored it up for that I did. Week. <laughs> I was I learned the term geo bachelor, which is oh, where right. you're a bachelor by virtue of being geographically separated from oh, your wife. Oh wow. So I was a geo bachelor for a week. All right. Cool. It was very lonely. So you'll get to be a geo bachelor again when you go to England for business. Well, I don't know if it counts if you're the one traveling because oh, I think okay. a geo bachelor like you're in your bachelor pad. Ah, uh, you know uh, I mean? okay, okay. So But yes, I do have the London trip coming up. That should be fun. Although I will miss you. Yes, I'll miss you too. But let's talk about season three. Yes. So uh, in this episode coming up, we're talking to Jordan and Catherine, two of our contributors, about the Oscars. Yeah, we watched the Oscars, part of it anyway. Part of it, yeah, you'll hear more about that. that. (laughs) So we kind of dig into that event. And then we talk to two more of our contributors, Joshua and Will. Yeah, about... so we've got a lot of people on this show. Yes, and they're all contributors. Yeah, so... we... yeah sorry, I cut you off. But yeah, we talked to them about artificial intelligence. Oh, yes. And that's a pretty interesting conversation as well. So stick around for that. Before we do that, though, we need to talk about contemporary preoccupations. So yes, Sally. it's been a while. What are you into lately? I've pretty much had one contemporary preoccupation since the beginning of this year. And I think my contemporary preoccupation before this year was like making soups and chilies and stuff and finding new vegetarian recipes to keep us warm. Um, But since coming back from Christmas break, I pulled out my immersion blender. Yes. Which I got for my birthday back in August. From who? From my wonderful husband. Okay. Yeah. And he knew that I would like it. And I knew that I would like it too, but I really couldn't find out what to use it for. I was kind of, I wanted it, but I wasn't sure what to do with it. And it wasn't until I realized soups, I mean, I knew that I could use it for soups, but then I just started finding soup recipes that required an immersion blender. And I think I've made four or five now, and they're amazing. It's so, I don't know, I guess I used to like soups that had more things in it, but now I really, really like the thick smooth consistency of of blended soups. Yeah, it's been amazing. I think my favorite one that you made was the butternut squash soup. Yeah, yeah. And and you can add texture to it by adding like quinoa into it or or in the case of your tomato soup. Yeah, the tomato soup is really good. I'm making that again tomorrow. And you thicken it with cashews. Yes. Which yeah, was crazy it's to me. Vegan. Yeah. So it's a vegan tomato soup and so you had to soak the cashews first, right? Yep. And then you blend them up with the vegetable broth and mix it in with the It was the best and... tomato soup I've ever had. Yeah. I loved it. We're going to do it again with grilled cheese at some point in the near yeah. future. And then you put uh, – we've been putting roasted chickpeas on a lot of our soups to add protein and crunch. So, yeah, I've pretty much just been finding – blending whatever I can blend <laughs> with my immersion blender. And I've enjoyed every bit of it. It's I don't know great. what I'm going to do, though, once it's warm. I, I don't know. Listeners, you should – Write in and tell us how I can use my immersion blender once I'm no longer making soups. So I don't know how we're going to use your immersion blender when it's warm. I can't answer that question, but I'm very excited about getting... Warm. Well, I'm very... Yes, I'm definitely excited about it getting warm, (laughs) but I'm very excited about making ice cream with our new ice cream maker. Oh, yes. We recently found out that we have been gifted a, um, like a, a, an original, like, crank 
ice cream maker. Old fashioned. Yeah. yeah no school like the old school. Yeah. Ice my cream grandparents, maker. it's theirs. They're giving it to us because they no longer use it. And they've used it probably since like the 60s. <laughs> and ice cream is one of my favorite foods of all time. Same. So. Best in the summer, Very obviously. excited about this. Yeah, we're really pumped. I've always yeah. wanted to make my own ice cream, so this is going to be amazing. We'll be updating you with our progress on ice cream recipes and everything. Yeah, I'm sure we... the first one will be a miserable failure, our first attempt. I feel like ice cream is a delicate thing to make. Maybe it won't be I've a miserable failure. I've never made failure. it. I honestly have no idea. I don't know. Maybe I, it won't. Maybe it'll be I great. I have no reason to disbelieve <laughs> you, but... I don't know. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes. So, yeah, so that's my... Pre- contemporary preoccupation. What is yours? So I'm kind of into my new Chromebook. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, which so I've I've had a my PC Windows PC for a long time. I got it in. I mean, not that long, but it's about about four years. Yeah. And it's been my experience that four years is about the lifespan of a computer to stay running well. Yeah. And so my computer was just not running well anymore. It was always getting really, really hot. It was really, really noisy. It was just working really, really hard to yeah. do the it simplest tasks. Yeah, it kind of turned tasks. off a few times It turned off me, gave, gave me the blue screen yeah. of death a few times. So we were worried about it just, just not doing well. Down. Yeah, so then I was looking at new computers to buy. Sally has a MacBook. We actually use a MacBook to record our podcast. We use GarageBand. And MacBooks are great, but the problem is MacBooks are really expensive. Yeah. So then we were thinking, okay, what can we do uh, That's portable. besides this? Yeah. And I looked at getting a Windows PC because I'm happy with mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, time to get a new one. But the problem with that is that Windows PCs often come, you know, pre-installed with a bunch of kind of clunky software that's unnecessary. But also, if you're going to use Microsoft Office, you have to get that whole suite as well. Yeah. So then I thought, well, I could just not get Microsoft Office and I could just use like Google drive stuff you know google docs all that but then i thought you know what i don't even know if i really need a computer with a big hard drive anyway because most of what i do in the computer is all online right um except for you know recording podcasts which we already use your macbook for right. Sally. so right so then we talked about it and realized that yeah we can actually just use our mac for that stuff that only a mac can do yeah and then we really just need a chromebook that we can share and we can each have we can take you know it our gmail places. logins because that's how chromebook works yeah and for those of you who don't know exactly what a Chromebook is. It's its own operating system. So Chrome is an OS, and Chromebooks run on Chrome. So Chrome normally, for people, just means the browser, but basically Chrome is also an operating system, and it does everything. You can run a whole computer on Chrome, but what it doesn't really have is much of a hard drive. So it's not, you don't have the, you know, a My Documents folder. You have a File Explorer, which has some hard drive capacity and stuff, but you don't have the traditional, like, My Documents, My Pictures, um, Desktop, all that stuff. You really run everything through a web browser. And you get, you know, free cloud stores through Google Drive. Um, and so far, I've loved it. It's been super fast. It's really I've had small. no problems with it. Very. I mean, it's a lot like a MacBook. Yeah, I have it a, is. I have a Toshiba Chromebook. And I got it for about a third of the price of a MacBook, maybe even a quarter. And Thank you, tax return. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's about the size of a MacBook. It's about the same weight. Uh, it feels a little bit cheaper in construction. I mean, Mac has always excelled in the quality of construction and kind of sure. design aesthetic, but it still feels pretty good. Yeah. Um, high definition screen, really everything we need. Yeah. Um, and we've loved it. Yeah. That's a good. So I think that'd be mine. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we should just get treat to it. I think go right to our guests. All right. Sounds good. So without further ado, let's talk Oscars. And we'll transition with some more appropriate music. Ah, yes.
All right, we are back with Vernacular Podcast, and we're sitting here with Jordan and Catherine Short, who have been on multiple times in the past. Jordan and Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, guys. So I think of you guys as our uh, our resident pop culture experts, and among many other attributes, right? Lots of other <laughs> attributes, but you are also our pop culture experts. And we thought it'd be fun to have you guys on to talk about the Oscars, which were as of the time of this recording last, last night. night. Yes. And uh, we stayed up for the whole thing. So I'm impressed. That is impressive because <laughs> Sally and I we set out to write. quickly. Yeah, we set out to watch the whole thing and faded very quickly. I think after an hour, they'd given out four awards. And there are a lot of awards to give out of the Oscars. So at that glacial pace, we didn't think they would finish before midnight. So Yeah, when did it finish? I don't even know. It was right at 11 central time oh okay so they sped up oh yeah they must so have. the poor east coasters yeah, yeah they really had to stay up. up on a work night no less ouch mm-hmm. <laughs> well so anyway the oscars what'd you guys think i mean i um i really enjoyed it i i thought as a whole it was it was a good night um I think the movies were great and i also really enjoyed chris rock as a host yes i thought he killed it yeah, totally. He totally killed it. Um, and he did what was necessary for for the night, for kind of the uh, uh, controversy yeah, the or news surrounding that, yeah, it. Absolutely. He had he did what he had to do, and he did it very well. And um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, in the weeks leading up to the Oscars, when all of this uh, controversy has been swirling around um, the event, and Chris Rock was announced as the host, I was really not envying his task of balancing that line. You know, yeah. how, do, how do you appropriately call attention to what is a serious issue, but also fulfill your duties as host and make sure the night is, is entertaining and enjoyable for people? And I think he balanced it very, very well, certainly better than I could have. Also, he, he drew attention to the subject matter, but also made light of some yes. of the silliness. Yes. Um, and even called out Will Smith like a I couple know. times. Yeah, Will and Jada, and that was Jada, so that funny. That was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible, and I think he handled it with a with a weight, but also a brevity that was it was it was good. Yeah, you know, an- another his... one of my favorite moments with um, his performance was when he introduced uh, Michael B. Jordan, who is announcing one of the awards, and he he introduced because it was Michael B. Jordan and Rachel McAdams who were presenting this and he introduced one Oscar nominee, Rachel McAdams and another should have been Oscar nominee, yeah, just Michael a very B. Jordan. Slight <laughs> dig there. <laughs> yes. The other thing I'm wondering how in advance that they had chosen that he was going to host because he hosted back in 2005. Yeah. I mean, I so think, it, I think he was announced before the nominees were announced. Right. And it just sort of happened that he got, wrapped up into this but he had done it before right yeah i mean my point was just that i think he was announced prior to the controversy so he was he really probably found this found himself in an unenviable position because there was Here all this controversy the smith's declining to even come right and, and then he, he has to MC the event and, yeah if he wants or he right. could have declined which i'm glad he didn't yeah i mean kudos to him for not yeah jordan and i were discussing you know what makes a good host and i do think that Chris Rock's stand-up comedian chops puts him as a really great host. He just has a way of delivering these awkward moments without him appearing awkward. 
Yeah, he kind of has to be ready to deliver these jokes, not knowing how they're going to land with the audience and just roll with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which he did really well. Yeah, and I it we began like kind of going through the list of, of recent past hosts, and a lot of our favorites um, had backgrounds in stand-up comedy. It just we were like, oh my gosh, like people who have laid their soul bare in front of a crowd they're the ones that are great at this because it's like they have removed the element of fear um and and it's just kind of like they can shoot from the hip right from the start and that's kind of i don't know it's kind of cool to to watch that and even like when sarah silverman last night was presenting an award she had no fear like it was just you were just like yes like i want more of this she was so bold. Um, yeah. Yeah, those um, those people in comparison to some, I guess, non-comedian actors who were presenting, they just, kind, they just kind of fell flat. They were just announcing and that was it. There was nothing, no spark to their presentation. Whereas, yeah, people who have that, that comedic ability, they really, I think, captured everyone's attention. You know, I was surprised, though, uh, that Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling did pretty well, and I didn't expect them to be good Such at that. Such an interesting <laughs> pair, yeah. Yes, I love Ryan had... Gosling's line. <laughs> Come on, Russell, we have two Oscars between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> they had great chemistry. <laughs> I know. I was surprised. I, do you, I mean, do you guys know how they, they choose the award presenters? For the actor categories, they have the previous year's winner of the opposite gender, then present for the following year okay, so it's the best actress is giving the award for the best actor category speaking of the best actor category leonardo dicaprio let's talk about that finally yes long overdue in oh, my man. opinion and he has tried everything to win that award <laughs> you know i i really love body of lies i think that's my favorite dicaprio film i'm surprised that didn't win him something because he's very good in that if you've not seen it i feel like he's been good uh, in everything I mean, I kind of thought, I mean, I'm sure there's a period of time when I wasn't really paying attention, like after Titanic or something, but everything else that I've seen him in, he's just, he's a really good actor. Did you have never seen Titanic? Wow. I've never seen it. You know, it's actually a pretty decent movie. Okay. Yeah, agreed. It's it's worth a watch. (laughs) Not his best, but a decent I mean, he was young. How could it be his best? Right, right. Exactly. Um... (laughs) But it's a spectacular movie. Like, if you just enjoy epics in general. Um, or just for the you, music. Right. Oh, Celine yeah. Dion. I do love me some Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, if we're going to talk about favorite moments, even though I wasn't awake for this moment, in retrospect, Leonardo DiCaprio winning Best Actor is definitely a favorite moment because I just thought he's been a great actor for years. Yes. he He really deserved it. And it didn't seem as though they were just giving it to him because he hadn't gotten it, but that he had also deserved it for the role in The Revenant. Right. Do you guys think that the Academy voters, like, hatched this master plan when he did Titanic? And they were like, hey, guys, we know he's good enough for an Oscar, but let's just wait until, like, 2016. We'll just, like, nominate him basically every year, but we're not going to actually give him his award until, like, 2016. Well, because if we give it to him too early, then he might just, like, stop trying. You don't want him to peak too early, right? Right. You know, I'm not going to say that there aren't conspiracies because (laughs) there are definitely some actors where they may never have another role like that. That is true. 
But Leonardo, he, you know, continually is amazing. So this is a total speculation on my part, but Catherine and I were talking about this earlier today, actually. And, and I said, you know, the vibe that I get from Leonardo DiCaprio is that he doesn't play the Hollywood game, like the politicking of Hollywood. Um, he kind of just like does his own thing. Like he's had his gang of friends that he's hung out with since he was a teenager. Um, and then of course he has, you know, a, a revolving door of models, but, and he has his like humanitarian efforts. And I think he just works all the time. So he's not around to just like schmooze as much. Like that's the vibe I get. Um, so I almost wonder if the Academy, like they respect him, but he's not, He's one not of one of them. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the vibe I get. And so I almost wonder if they take him for granted uh, mm-hmm. because he's not in their face all the time. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. We were talking about it last night and I was saying, I wonder how these people are in person and how much of this is political. I mean, it, it seems pretty clear to me that probably a lot of the Oscars and who is selected every year is political, which is kind of part of a bigger question of whether or not the Oscars are relevant in that way. Like, is this really, are we awarding the best talent or are we awarding the best connected people? You know, if someone like DiCaprio is overlooked or maybe because of, um, uh, because of the lack of diversity, it's even more clear. Like, you know, this is not, this is like an insider's club more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about other highlights. So best actor, definitely a highlight. Can we talk about why Mad Max won so many awards? Yeah. I mean, Mad Max, the original Mad Max, uh, was made by George Miller, and it starred um, Mel Gibson as Mad Max. And it came out in the 80s, early 80s, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, was a similar concept, like the Earth had reached a point where water was scarce and oil was scarce. And so... Basically, tribes were warring against each other to ha- for control. Basically. basically, your classic post-apocalyptic resource classic. shortage scenario. Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. totally. So, so then George Miller, you know, so many years later, thirty years later, uh, makes another, and and this movie, Mad Max, is there is a lot of action in it, but uh, it is just the artistry is insane for, for this movie. Uh, I liked the original. The original was fun. It was a great 80s um, movie. But there's a lot of, um, in the new one, there's also a lot of like internal turmoil and battling of like kind of, it's it's an emotional movie. And, and also the special effects, there's a lot of practical effects that are involved in this film. So it's not just like CGI'd everything. Gotcha. So my um, video game analogy is not apt. <laughs> right, right. So they, there was a lot of like crazy stuff that went on in, in the making of this movie, and and it's it's a beautiful movie to watch. It's it's brutal in the sense that you know there are battles that happen, um, but it's it's also very beautiful, and um, yeah. So I wouldn't have been surprised if it if it would have won best picture, honestly, really? for wow. its technical, um, you know, artistry and also the story that it's telling. Um, I mean, I don't think it was the front runner by any means, uh, but, but I, it wouldn't have surprised me terribly if it would have, 
Um, you know, as a as a film, for instance, so Spotlight won Best Picture. Spotlight is a brilliant movie. Both Catherine and I loved it, but it was great for its screenplay and great for its acting, not as a movie. So I kind of like disagree that it was better than some of the other Best Picture uh, nominees. Like, I don't think it was a better film than The Revenant. Or even The Martian. Or even The Martian. Or even possibly Mad Max. Like, it was a great, very well-written, well-acted movie, but not a better constructed movie. Right. Yes. Right. Like, the pieces having to be put together were a lot smaller. Like, if you put all those actors in a room that were in um, Spotlight. Spotlight, they would have just killed it no matter what. Like, like you give them the script and just let them go. And they're going to execute, yeah. They're going to execute it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I'm... Not that Spotlight isn't a beautiful, deserving, poignant film. It's just... Yeah. It's not a movie where you go, I need to rewatch that. I missed something. Right, right. And, and but a lot of times those are the ones that tend to win these these kind of softer stories. I mean, not softer stories, but the Mad Maxes don't tend to win. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But speaking of the Martian. Yeah, that's what I was about to bring up. <laughs> yeah. I was sad that that got Why? shut out. Yeah, I yeah. was too. I, I thought movie. it was fantastic. I thought it, it had a really I... good shot at set design because I was very impressed right. with what they did on Mars. It seemed that they chose Mad Max as the winner of sort of the sci-fi, you know, amongst the Martian and Star Wars. Yeah. Mad Max was going to win those awards. So do you but guys the, think that... The, the Martian Sorry, go ahead. Should, well, I was. I mean, I think guess Jordan. Are you the only one who's seen who's seen both Mad Max and The Martian? Yes. So what on this call? <laughs> what do you think? Right in the world. So what do you think? Do you think The Martian should have won some of those awards, or were did, did were they right? And yeah, I mean, I loved The Martian. Um, I but I feel like the technical artistry of Mad Max. It's mind blowing. You're watching it, and and you're just like, how did they do that? Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, The Martian is great, uh, but I think Mad Max was deserving of pretty much all those. My heart wanted Star Wars to win <laughs> visual effects, uh, but but yeah. The interesting thing I think also to note regarding Mad Max is. Um, that it was one of the best reviewed movies of the year, um, critically. And, and the costume designer who won for best costume design last night, um, she won for Mad Max. And she mentioned that in her speech that it was, you know, one of the best reviewed movies of the year. And I think it's, it's interesting, even though it was released earlier, uh, I think in the early summer or late spring, Mm -hmm. um, it's still just people loved it, and it's it's crazy. Right. It was a movie that people actually went and saw. Well, I'll probably go see it now that it won all these awards. I mean, I have to see what all the buzz <laughs> yeah. is about, so they got me. Yeah. Well, another highlight from last night, Lady Gaga and her performance. Oh, man. She can just keep singing at award ceremonies. She kills it. <laughs> Didn't she sing at the Super Bowl as well? She did. Yeah, and then she she really uh, 
knocked the uh, David Bowie tribute out of the park at the Grammys um, as well. So she's just on a roll. She's on a roll. It seems like she's diversified as she's gotten a little bit more mature as an artist because when she started, she was doing all these kind of like poker face type things that were... Crazy costumes. Right, and kind of... um, Seemed less about what she was singing and more about What she was doing, yeah. Yeah. She's weaving it in a bit more. She still has costumes... But I feel as though her talent is actually outshining what she's wearing. Yeah. Where you almost don't even really notice that, you know, she's doesn't look like how she looked a week ago. Right. And um, speaking of talent outshining, Sam Smith, the other guy who sang last night and Ooh. one of the Oscar winners with yes. that song that Jordan, I know you and I have talked about before. Yes, I, was, I, I was surprised this one won. And it's not because it's. I think it's a bad song. I actually think it's a great song. I just think it's a bad song for a Bond film. And I'm surprised that it won because of that. Because I think that for an Oscar, you have to take into account the movie and the song. Like, you don't have to judge the movie, but you have to judge the song and how well it fits the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Because... it's not the Grammys. Right, exactly. So I think that song, absolutely worthy of a Grammy. I mean, and I've said before, Sam Smith is so talented and I love his stuff. Uh, but I don't know, an Oscar, because I think when you're taking into account like costume design, for example, you're not just going to give the award to the best costume independent of the film. You're going to give the award to the best costumes that also accurately are situated in the context of a film. Totally. Right. So yeah, yeah, ideally, uh, couldn't agree more. That is probably the best metaphor for, for this. Yeah. So I don't know. I was just, I was surprised. I mean, certainly happy for Sam. He did a great job. He sung well last night as well, but I was just kind of surprised he got the nod. Yeah, well, simil- I mean, similarly to your best picture comment, I guess it was Jordan, you were saying this, that you have to take the movie as a whole and just looking at the acting and the, the screenplay, you have to look at the whole movie as a film. And so I think similarly, it's good to, yeah, to contextualize the song. Right. How, how, how did it work in the context of the larger film? Right, exactly. Well, in the song that Lady Gaga sang, it told a very specific story for the movie. Whereas I feel as though this particular Bond song, it could have been in any Bond movie. Mm. So you're saying Lady Gaga should have won? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least she fits this criterion yeah. that Zach has laid out better than. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And also, like, uh, even. When you see, okay, Sam Smith, technically, his vocals were, were great, you know, when he sang uh, during the, the ceremony, the Oscar ceremony. But the power of Lady Gaga's song and the story just blew Sam Smith out of the water. There was no even comparison um, as far as, like, the story, the, the context of the song within the movie, all of that stuff. Yeah, so maybe I after just... seeing the juxtaposition with them both performing on the same stage in the same evening, some of those voters are like, man, I wish I could <laughs> cast my vote <laughs> well, again. I hope so. Unfortunately, they didn't have time to have the rest of the songs performed. They, um, right. The rest of the songs nominated. They were planned, but they didn't have time to put them in. Oh, and that would have been interesting like to hear more. Yeah, yeah. So they just axed them last minute? Like, sorry, guys, we're running behind here. We had yeah. to make time for our advertisers, so you're getting the boot. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> also, one thing to note, like we were watching uh, the Oscars at 
my co-working space, Weld, here in Nashville. And when we were watching Sam Smith perform, like he kept wobbling back and forth and swaying. And all of us were just like, what the heck is he doing? I thought that was so distracting. So distracting. And I was like, he needs to stand still. Yeah, I've seen him perform before and he's not that, like he he has some physicality to him, but not that extreme. I thought he was nervous or something, but it was extremely distracting. He looked very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what was going on there. Well, he I, I read an interview or something he had commented where he was like he hated every minute of it. Oh. And I was like, well, you probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Seriously. You just won an Oscar. Yeah. Um, but also it was obvious because yeah. you looked like a wreck. Yeah. You know, like he's saying great. Yeah. But he looked super nervous. Yeah. I mean, I just think he's less a showman than Lady Gaga, so – Mm-hmm. Probably part of it. Yeah. Totally. Yep. You're totally right. All right, guys. So to wrap up here, I, I kind of posed this question earlier, and I know that you guys wanted to talk about this, but um, do you think the Oscars are still relevant? Or do you think they were ever relevant? Are the Oscars relevant? The interesting thing about the Oscars is that they were designed to promote the studio houses, not necessarily movies as a whole so now we're 80 years into this and studios aren't you know the only people making movies so it's kind of hard to say are they really representing you know this industry as a whole or are we just still only you know supporting the larger studios Yeah, that's a good point. I think there was an interesting sketch that occurred uh, in the middle of the show where Chris Rock went to Compton um, and stood outside of a theater in Compton. And he was he was highlighting some funny racial difference, you know, differences, basically. Um, But his whole thing was like, okay, like, are some of these movies actually watched by the public? and and he was he was highlighting a very narrow slice of the public but at the same time i think it's a it's a thought that the academy probably needs to consider um so and, are they and make, relevant to general right. audiences yeah but but you know i would argue this you know if if i am paying attention you know i'm a graphic designer and if i am voting or submitting work for an award uh, in the graphic design community, that's very narrow. It's a very narrow thing. It's people in the industry submitting and people in the industry judging. And we do it for ourselves. And I almost feel like the Oscars, yes, movies are seen by the nation and the world. I get that. Um, but it's also, it's kind of like the top of the top voting on each other. And I think. It's not the People's Choice Awards. It's not the People's Choice Awards for crying out loud. Thank you. Right. So I think it it is what it is, and it's an upper echelon thing of a select group of people talking about themselves. And that's okay. And I kind of love it. I mean, I'm not saying the Academy gets it right every year, um, but – it's it's fun. It's a fun glimpse. I think the problem is that we've created this hoopla around it, and so we expect it to then represent all of us. Right. But really, we're watching an industry's, 
you know, giving a certain select people. Yeah, it's it's the industry's corporate rewards. Right. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you guys more. I mean, uh, I think my position on it on the question are they still relevant? I mean, yes, they're still relevant. They're relevant in the sense that uh, it gives us a little bit of insight into Hollywood. It gives us a few hours a year to watch all of the insiders do their stuff. Uh, it's one metric of movie success, but it's important to remember it's only one metric. I mean, mm-hmm. one, uh, not all the worthy candidates are included, as we saw with the, the controversy this year. Two, even the worthy candidates that are included don't don't always get the nod. I mean, just because Leonardo DiCaprio hadn't won till this year didn't make him less of an actor in any in any way. Right. It's just one metric that he hadn't achieved. And so the Academy Awards are they're relevant, sure. I mean, they're one metric, but they're not the only metric. They're not the pinnacle of acting because there are plenty of good actors and movie makers and Catherine, the like you said, independent uh, studios that are not recognizing them, and that's perfectly fine. And, you know, it takes a long time to make a movie, whereas I feel in television you can get a slightly better representation of culture culture, because it moves faster. Right. And well, because they're releasing episodes weekly, usually, mm-hmm. right. you can keep the, your pulse on on the general audience and, and kind of be flexible about what you present. You could change at the last minute, whereas a film, not so much. Right, right, and the overhead is lower, right? So you can yeah, the you can make mistakes uh, and and not worry about it as much. Yeah, you know? I mean, but I I agree with what everybody said, and I think we're just watching we're watching experts award other experts or wannabe experts or experts in the making, and I think that's cool. It's exciting. We're really watching people who think they're experts award <laughs> other people who think they're experts. But they are in their field, sure, you know. Yeah. I mean. They they at least have some expertise that yeah. we lack, and and I think that's cool to watch. Right, it's like I mean, really, we're watching for the fashion, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just hey, be runway. careful, though. Remember what Chris Rock said. <laughs> I know. I think I think one interesting thing too is, um, you know, the Academy Awards. We see the the big show, right? But there's a bunch of awards that are handed out the day before, or earlier in the week that are given to, you know, people that never get airtime. And and honestly, most of the awards that are handed out during the big ceremony are handed out to people that you never see their faces, you know, unless they win an Oscar. And I think there's a lot of small people that are celebrated during the Oscars as well. Yeah. Um, And I think, I think that's really fun. Um, There's a lot of artistry and, and a lot of people that that make make it happen, and um, I don't know. I think it's 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 fun. It's fun glimpse, like you said, Zach. It's a fun peek behind the curtain. Well, thanks for coming on, guys, and talking about this. Oscars twenty sixteen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another year down. <laughs> Welcome back to Vernacular. We are here with two guests that you have heard multiple times before. But not together. This is the first time yes. these two guests are together. So we are room, welcoming. But together on the same podcast. Will Bryan and Joshua DeGastian. Guys, welcome back to the show. Our, so for our listeners who've not heard these gentlemen before, or for our listeners who know their memory jogged, yeah, Will is a uh, postdoctoral research fellow. Is that right, Will? 
<laughs> okay, something like that at Baylor University. And Joshua is like uh, in med school uh, at Georgetown School of Medicine. So we've had them on the show to talk about lots of things. Joshua, Especially related to science. Yeah, they're kind of our science gurus. So we thought we'd have them on the show to talk about a very complicated but interesting topic today. And that is, drumroll please, artificial intelligence. Why are we talking about artificial intelligence now? <laughs> because there have been some interesting news articles as of late that we wanted to talk about. Uh, that you may have missed. Yes, you may have missed. Or you may not have missed this, and you just want to talk about it more, hear it talked about. So the first of these is, for the first time in history, a computer has beaten a human at the game of Go. And if you don't know what that is, Will or Joshua, can you guys explain what Go is? Go for it, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Go is a game that's played with white stones and black stones uh, between two different players. And I actually haven't played in a very long time. I played a little bit in graduate school. Um, but it's been a very long time since I've played, so I don't know that much about the game. But I, let me tell you what I do know, which is that it's an, it's an incredibly complex game. To give you an idea of how complex it is, let me tell you that I had a friend in graduate school who was a few years ahead of me. And he was getting his doctorate in math at Oxford and was really more passionate than anything else about the game of Go. And after he finished his doctoral degree, he actually decided to move to Korea to pursue Go full time. He had made a fortune in Bitcoin uh, the year prior, which if you don't know what that is, it's, uh, it's a different story altogether. But he bought in and they were really, really, really cheap. I think he bought about 100 pounds worth of Bitcoin. That's British pounds, not physical yeah, yeah. pounds. In case you really don't know what Bitcoin is. <laughs> that makes but, no uh, sense. <laughs> he bought in about, about 100 pounds worth of these things and cashed out a year later with, I want to say, around 50,000 pounds. Oh, my gosh. And so he used that money to move to Korea and learn the game of Go from whatever masters he could find there to teach him and to just practice and really try to get to the point where he could make a professional venture of it. And this guy, he was a very good mathematician. He was a very bright guy. And spending all, nearly all of his time, all of the time that he could spare anyway, learning Go, he still had a very, very difficult time rising to the level of being able to uh, compete in Go, much less become a master of it, much less become the master of it. I mean, this, this is such a complex game that uh, it, it takes people years and years and years to figure out how to play it well, so it's it's like chess in that regard. Uh, if you really get into chess, there are masters of chess, there are grandmasters of chess, people who devote all of their time to chess, and still there are more mountains to climb, there are more people to beat, there are more benchmarks to to meet. And Go is exactly the same way. There's no end to how much time you can spend getting better at Go. Um, and as far as computers are concerned, it seems more difficult for whatever reason to play Go than to play chess. I think part of the reason is that the game tree is faster branching. Uh, for any given Go position, I think there are more possibilities for where the game could go than any given chess position. And since that is essentially how computers play games like this, by analyzing uh, the game tree, that is the, the sequence of possible future moves, Go is much harder than chess for computers to play. Um, the number of possible moves is, I think, on the order of 10 to the 360th power. That's so crazy. this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is more than the number of atoms in the known universe. Wow. That is true by quite a few. 
So, so it's remarkable that human beings can play this, let alone <laughs> <laughs> computers. Yeah, exactly. Well, to be fair, that that's the number of possible move sequences for a game, not uh, not the number of moves in a given game. Otherwise, right, right. It, it would it would take a very long time to play. <laughs> it's never been finished. Um, <laughs> all right, yeah. So for the first time ever, a computer beat a human in the game of Go, uh, which is pretty remarkable. The second news story that I wanted to talk about or at least mention, is that Google recently announced, there's a great article in Wired Magazine that you can see if you head to our website. Uh, Google recently announced that it is using a form of artificial intelligence to enhance its web searches. Uh, specifically, it's using this program called RankBrain. And RankBrain basically uh, makes use of what's called uh, deep learning. And it's very, basically a very complicated network that mimics the neural network of the brain, and it does so in order to make sense of big data. And so Google's built this to understand and interpret people's searches and then use basically recursive uh, cognitive logic or, um, or pseudo-cognitive logic to make sense of those and enhance results for everyone else. So it's the first time this has ever been done. Uh, but Wired Magazine, as you'll see if you check out the article, is saying that this is really just the beginning. So uh, Joshua, I'll turn it over to you now. What are the implications of this? Yeah, great question. Um, it always helps to have a little bit of background and context. Um, so a lot of listeners might be familiar with um, some buzzwords floating around. Um, it's not just called uh, artificial intelligence. Um, some people uh, frequently refer to uh, machine learning. Um, and whether you use either of those terms as a Google search or in any um, podcast search, you're going to come up with uh, a lot of different results. So anyone who's ever taken a class on Coursera, um, which kind of pioneered the way towards um, massive open online courses or MOOCs, the first class on there was actually about machine learning because the guy who founded um, Coursera uh, was basically a uh, out on the West Coast, a machine learning professor um, who wanted to teach this uh, and get this out to the world instead of because people kept emailing him all the time. Um, and so now that uh, Google is incorporating uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence into uh, things like their autonomous self-driving cars and rank brain, as you mentioned, um, people are starting to get curious um, about uh, what exactly it can do. So I'll go ahead and throw this in there just um, if you're looking for things to get controversial. But one of the biggest things that people are worried about um, is how you teach uh, a car morals. Um, so if you have this two-ton thing pummeling down the road uh, and it loses traction or there's um, a kid whose ball rolls out into the street, uh, how do you essentially decide to swerve around them without causing damage to other human beings uh, if you run into their car? So almost any article you pull up on artificial intelligence will pose this as the basic um, ethical difficulty. Um, and it wasn't until the 1980s that people started exploring heuristic computing um, and asking if we can teach machines not just um, how to think, but how to reason logically uh, within the realm of morality. And that brings up a really interesting ethical question that hopefully we can dig into a little bit more. But Will, I want to turn it over to you. 
to talk a little bit about the philosophical idea of artificial intelligence. When we say this, what do we mean? Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit about Alan Turing's uh, imitation game, not the movie, uh, but the concept itself. Uh, what's the standard by which we measure artificial intelligence and how do we uh, determine what is artificially intelligent and what is just a powerful computer? Is there a difference? Well, what we mean by artificial intelligence uh, depends on how you're using the term. So a lot of times when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're talking about a certain type of modern technology that is very good at accomplishing tasks that at first seem like tasks uh, you would need an intelligent person to do. So playing chess very well or winning at Jeopardy are things that seem to require intelligence. And computers can get very, very good at these things. Uh, the computer Watson has become the world's foremost Jeopardy champion, better than Ken Jennings and whoever else is, has won at Jeopardy in the past. Uh, the computer Deep Blue has beaten the world's best grandmasters at chess. Uh, you know, computers are now the best at playing chess in the world. But the way that these computers are operating, the way that they're accomplishing these tasks, is not, it's, it's not the same as the way a brilliant human being would go about accomplishing these tasks. In other words, a computer did not beat Garry Kasparov at chess because it understands chess better than Kasparov. A computer beat Kasparov at chess because it has a much larger memory and it can do computations much faster. And it, it beat him by brute force, by being a better computer, not a better thinker. So if by artificial intelligence you mean the ability to do tasks that seem to require intelligence then we have very good artificial intelligence and we're constantly getting better. Another thing that could be meant by the phrase artificial intelligence is, is the actual imitation of human intelligence. This is the sort of thing that we tend to see more in science fiction movies and novels than we do in real life. Uh, it turns out that modern technology hasn't really hacked away at that problem too much and that most modern computers, although they're very good at imitating intelligent thought in certain arenas, uh, do not actually do so by imitating intelligent thought any more than an airplane imitates a bird or a mosquito when it flies. It, it flies by, by different principles, by being an airplane. And designers of airplanes don't really study birds and mosquitoes, they, they study aerodynamics. Uh, in the same way, designers of artificial intelligence aren't experts at psychology or neuroscience, uh, they're experts at computer science. And it's by exploiting the strengths of computers that we can do things like uh, have computers that are very good at chess, for example, or, or a computer more, more recently, a computer that can win at Go. Um, the Turing test, which you asked about, is a test devised by the grandfather of computer science, Alan Turing, uh, which he set as a benchmark for whether or not uh, art artificial intelligence has been accomplished. Now, his, his benchmark was that he wanted a computer that could essentially fool a human being into thinking that the computer is a human being. So the idea is that uh, perhaps a computer and an actual person are each sitting behind a closed door, and they're interacting with me uh, by some interface that you know, I can't really hear a voice or anything like that. Maybe they're typing on a screen. And I message. Yeah, iMessage, sure. So I'm iMessaging uh, A and I'm iMessaging B. Now I know that one of A and B is a computer and one of A and B is a person. And I'm supposed to determine which is which. The Turing test 
is that a computer has achieved artificial intelligence if I am unable to make that determination. If a computer can uh, fool me into thinking that maybe it's the person or that, or, or just get me to admit that I don't know which of A and B is the person and which is the computer, then that computer has passed the Turing test. It would seem like the brute force technique that you're talking about could actually succeed in doing that because it could have enough data to build on to create reasonable sounding human-like responses in the Turing test, right? That is possible. Uh, if you want, you can get Siri to tell you a joke, for example. Um, now I'm, I'm not saying Siri is a good substitute for a good friend when you're sitting around a campfire, but maybe in 20 years she could be. Uh, maybe in 20 years the, the same idea for the technology of Siri could progress to the point where it seems like talking to Siri is like talking to a good friend. In other words, perhaps that technology could progress to the point where it passes the Turing test, um, which some would say would be a big accomplishment. Some might say that's simply a failing of the Turing test. Uh, that perhaps the real test isn't whether or not a computer can fool you into thinking it's a person. It could fool um, some, some rational man into thinking that it's a person. Perhaps the real test is whether a computer can do that by actually imitating intelligent thought rather than imitating... Uh, rather than drawing some from some huge database of conversational tidbits and determining what statistically is a good response to a certain question. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, Turing wasn't around to see the age of big data, but it seems like it's it would be fairly easy to build a machine that can replicate what Turing envisions as artificial intelligence just using the brute force approach that you've talked about. What's less right. apparent to me is that uh, that we can find ways to emulate human cognition, or maybe maybe emulate is because that's really what it does is it imitates human cognition, but it doesn't replicate human cognition. Sure, um, I, and I think the, the problem that some people have with artificial intelligence as it now stands is not necessarily that it doesn't replicate or emulate human intelligence. It's that it's simply that it's not intelligence at all. Um, you know, it, there just doesn't seem to be anything resembling what we would call thought or consciousness behind the idea of drawing on a big database in order to produce an acceptable response to something. Um, for, for example, language translators don't actually understand the sentences that they're translating. A human translator works by understanding an idea and then re-expressing it in a different language. Google Translate works by mining a huge amount of data to determine what words should be translated what way and how certain combinations of words uh, should be translated. Well, it's not actually understanding anything. You, you type a sentence into Google Translate, it doesn't actually know what you said. It just tells you how to say it in a different language, which is very useful and impressive in many ways. But I don't think it's what anyone would call intelligence. So is that deep learning? Is that, is that what rank brain does? Yeah, what, what things like RankBrain and Siri and pretty much every version of artificial intelligence that we now have, uh, they operate on some something akin to uh, data mining. So the idea is that there's a big, big, big book, let's call it, of acceptable responses to certain questions or acceptable um, responses to certain stimuli more generally. And given a stimulus, given given an input... Uh, this, the response is determined based on a huge amount of data 
and statistical analysis and maybe some other clever algorithm, but the cleverness is all on the side of the people programming the algorithm. There's no cleverness in the program itself. The program is not thinking. The program is analyzing data and outputting a response. Yeah, so real quick, the notable uh, exception to um, what Will is discussing here, and he brought up two uh, great uh, topics, mainly neuroscience and science fiction. So first, on the science fiction piece, we've had a lot of great movies recently. For anyone who saw the most recent Avengers movie, uh, Age of Ultron, basically the competition between Jarvis and Ultron is kind of what we're getting at with these discussions over the ethics of artificial intelligence. You create something very powerful that can think for itself, and when it decides um, to stop taking orders from humans, uh, essentially this deep learning that we're referring to um, is when machines have learned how to think for themselves, they start writing their own code, they're doing their own programming so that they can ignore objectives um, that they were given by giving themselves higher priorities. So absolutely, what Will is saying about the brute force method, um, you know, the, the way that Google Translate works, the way that a lot of data mining works, um, that's very different um, from this other dystopian future we're talking about where suddenly, um, you know, machines are following their own rules uh, that they've written for themselves. Well, that's a good segue, actually, into what I wanted to talk about, because I want to talk about the ethics of artificial intelligence a little bit. Um, Joshua, what you just said reminded me of uh, an episode of The Office that Sal and I were actually watching last night, where uh, Dwight is trying to outsell the internet in paper, and then and then Jim and Pam decide to prank him and and uh, mess it, like I'm or instant message him and pretend to be the computer that's Come talking alive. to him. Yeah, <laughs> and then Dwight. With the deadpan expression, looks at the camera, and he's like, this happens to computers sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they... <laughs> they become self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what I was going to say is that there's, there's, I mean, there's, there are concerns before we reach that step of being in the age of Ultron. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely. not like... I was going to bring this point either up. Either the computers are obeying us or, or the computers are the age of Ultron. There's, I mean... Am I the only one who hasn't seen this movie? <laughs> you haven't seen the second Avengers? Uh, no, it's not worth your time. It was a disappointment. Are you sure? Because it sounds pretty cool the way y'all are talking about I it. I mean, I, I definitely like the first Avengers better, but I think it's worth seeing yeah. it just because it's an Avengers movie. I did appreciate the first Avengers yeah. movie, so I would probably – it's probably worth my time to watch. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that from what the Wired article was saying, Googlers are concerned – already that the deep learning is something that they can't control that or understand even just on a search engine level yeah i was going to bring up that exact point because the issue i mean what joshua talked about maybe is is the kind of logical conclusion of this if it gets that far maybe but 20 years from now yeah or but something. like you said sally it doesn't have to get that far to be potentially problematic because the whole issue is you build a system you know a deep learning system that basically teaches itself and ends up teaching itself things that you you don't quite understand how it learns. Yeah. And so the the uh, the part of the Wired article that talks about this is called losing control, and it uses it as an example Google's photo recognition software, where it learns how to recognize people's faces and how to compare faces and recognize the same people in different situations, in different contexts, in different photographs. And this Google team has set up a neural network to teach the 
to have the machine teach itself how to do this, basically. And it's getting really good at it, but they don't even quite understand how because they've, they've basically given it all the tools they need, you know, teach a man to fish. Wait, wait, give him, wait, <laughs> give a man to fish. Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for... So the whole idea is they're, they're no longer uh, doing all of the algorithmic programming theirself, themselves. They're basically teaching the computer how to fish. Right, and so now they're in a lawsuit. Oh, I didn't even see that part. Yeah, they're in a Whoa. lawsuit, an antitrust European... Well, it's an investigation, I guess. It hasn't quite reached the point of a lawsuit, but into whether they unfairly demoted the pages of certain competitors. So, and they, they may not know how their... How RankBrain or whatever was the culprit decided mm. to, you know, make this page oh, more man. higher up on so the search engine than this page. So RankBrain is just promoting Google so it can promote itself. <laughs> wow. Well, well, RankBrain is pride for the <laughs> Man. It's a good question and good concerns. Um, at the risk of immediately coming off as reductionistic, I will throw out there that this comes down to our basic example of dual-use technology Basically, anything that humans invent, um, some you know very well-meaning people out there are going to use it to um, you know cure cancer or understand tumors better, and other people are going to use it to um, build an atom bomb and blow up Hiroshima and Nagasaki. No, I mean you're just saying it's not intrinsically. There's not anything intrinsically wrong with it. Yes, just how we use it. Yeah, and I think I'm on the same uh, – um, I, I would take the same position that you do, Joshua, um, just with the caveat that, you know, anytime you start a process that you don't fully understand and a process that can, you know, run away from you and you don't fully understand, uh, you just have to be careful, right? I mean, so this is a, a, a technology that has enormous potential uses. You know, maybe maybe it'll be a uh, an artificial intelligence, you know, deep learning machine that figures out how to cure cancer. I think that is actually one of the stated goals of some of these artificial intelligence teams. I think uh, the Google team specifically has said that one of their goals is to have their deep learning machines someday making scientific advances by themselves. That's such an impressive thing to think about. And it's, 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 hard, it's hard for me to think about artificial intelligence without getting like all, you know, iRobot, Age of Ultron. <laughs> it's such a crazy idea to me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think going back to the first question you raised, Joshua, in the very beginning of this conversation, Google's self-driving cars. I mean, how do you teach a computer ethics? Or maybe since you don't teach these, um, and you don't teach in the system, it kind of learns for itself and figures out how to learn by combing through data. How do you, um, how do you ensure that a computer learns ethics appropriately? And there are different definitions of appropriate, right? Because we have all kinds of different philosophies out there. Uh, we might want to teach it one sort of ethics um, that, you know, has lots of principles like solidarity or subsidiarity or loyalty to your family or country, etc. But if a computer doesn't have those normal constraints, uh, then you give it a pure utilitarian calculus. And if a kid's ball rolls out in the middle of the street, are you going to swerve out of the way of that? and hit another car where there's, based on what it's calculated about the speed, there's a 40% chance that all three people in that car will die. Or probably a 99% chance that this kid in front of you is going to die. Do you do calculus with that or teach it to make human decisions? Well, I think uh, you know machines live in the domain of quantity and quantifiable 
things. So I think there's really no other way that you could go uh, away from utilitarian ethics. I mean, I don't think you can expect a machine to uh, learn virtue ethics. <laughs> like, you know, I think that's one of the one of the big problems. Artificial intelligence can never replicate the human mind because artificial intelligence can never be courageous. Uh, it can never be uh, emotional, right? And so that's that's one of the limitations of machines is they can't have emotion. I mean, they can mimic emotion. Uh, you know, you can teach a robot dog to be sad when you don't uh, pet the robot dog every day, but that's not actually emotion. Uh, and so virtue ethics thrive on the virtues uh, as, a, as a system of ethics that thrives on the virtues, which thrive on, um, I think, the human passions. I don't know. My philosopher wife could probably talk more about this than I could. <laughs> yeah, I think if that's true, I mean, I don't know if you can, I guess it seems like you can't teach robots or computers how to how to understand duties and virtues and obligations like that but um i think if that's true then i i would be concerned i don't think a utilitarian ethical framework is something that we want self-driving cars to be operating on yeah that's a debate worth having <laughs> <laughs> so i mean what well, i think zach made a fantastic point and there are a lot of uh this is definitely in the public consciousness, right? And a lot of people want to discuss it. So movies, again, over the past year that came out like Chappie or Ex Machina, um, it's not only asking can you know robots operate with some kind of um, human system like virtue ethics, but also you know starting to blur the lines around the definition of human. Uh, I really enjoyed your... Um, episode recently here on Vernacular um, about what can go wrong when we um, blur the definitions around what's human. And if you don't include, um, you know, three-month-old babies in the womb um, as human yet, uh, then you've maybe blurred that line and, you know, are given ethical situations about whether, you know, people start using terms like um, terminate a pregnancy or not bring the embryo to full term instead of uh, giving it a very human sense of, you know, well, you're, you're taking care of a child. Um, so the closer that robots, you know, and artificial intelligence, machine learning and computers get to um, exhibiting human emotions, I think it is important to, you know, continue reasserting a robust definition of humanity, uh, what we stand for, how we're distinct from you know, animals, the rest of the natural world, computers, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, especially since we already talked about one of the main envisioned applications for this stuff is the medical field. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's one place where you don't want, you you really don't want utilitarian ethics, it's the medical field because, you know, when it comes down to a calculation between getting a vaccine for 10 people or, you know, intubating one elderly person, uh, and that's not the right way to conceptualize the problem, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but there's no other way to do it uh, if you're operating in a utilitarian framework. Yeah. Any other uh, final thoughts before we close out here? Yeah. So just in terms of for anyone listening who's interested in further reading on the topic, um, a lot of people in the field I've heard referred to this as GEB. Um, but there's a book called Godel Escher Bach. It's like 700 plus pages, though, just to warn everyone out there. (laughs) Yeah, warning. uh, So 
but once you're warned, uh, incredible story about this guy. The Cliff Notes version of it, there's an article in The Atlantic called The Man Who Would Teach Machines to Think. Um, it's about Doug Hofstadter, who won a Pulitzer Prize for writing um, this book and essentially launching a very you know, erratic career where he largely makes the points that Will was making, that most people working in this field aren't really advancing artificial intelligence and are really just using these um, shortcuts, you might call them, or brute force techniques um, to do things that we can look at and go, wow, amazing, uh, but probably aren't going to lead to any um, cutting-edge advances um, in maybe some of our um, biggest need areas. So last buzzword it would be uh, neural networks. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying to understand how the human brain works um, so that we can you know, incorporate that into machines, um, make decisions a certain way, and potentially solve a lot of um, a lot of neurological disorders that the White House has recently prioritized uh, with their brain initiative that really need solving. So, Will, we'll turn it over to you for our final question before we close out. How far do you think artificial intelligence will advance in our lifetimes? I'm glad you added those last three words. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would have an answer if you didn't. For the next <laughs> few centuries, Ever. just map it out for us. <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, so I, one, one of the things I did in order to prepare for tonight's episode was to ask my colleagues, uh, the, the math department, uh, so, you know, some of the math professors that I eat lunch with at Baylor, ask them what they thought about artificial intelligence and how it would progress in the next few decades, the next few centuries, what are the limits, if any, of possibility? And one of the things that we discussed was precisely this, uh, the difference between what I would think of as genuine artificial intelligence and what I would call maybe more smoke and mirrors, clever tricks. Um, you know, it seems at first like a big difference. For example, if I go on a date with somebody, uh, there seems to me to be a big difference between my leaning forward uh, to offer a hand to hold because I've studied statistics and I've viewed thousands of hours of dating footage and I've stalked several successful couples on their dates and <laughs> determined that this is the precise moment when one should lean forward and, takes, and take the woman's hand in order to ensure successful, uh, you know, a, a successful rest of the night. That, that's a little creepy. That's weird. Right, right. That's not, what, that's not how any woman wants her hand to be taken by a man on a date. Um, there's a big difference between that and, well, it just felt right, and I really like her, so I wanted to hold her hand. Um, the latter seems like genuine romance. The former feels like a trick. It feels like smoke and mirrors. So I asked these professors of mathematics what they thought about this sort of difference, whether it really matters, whether this uh, puts some sort of limit on what we can do with artificial intelligence. And one of them responded in what I thought was an interesting way. He said, how do we know that we're not just doing that, but in a way that's hidden to us and in a way that's very much more effective than what we could currently accomplish with computer technology? So the, the idea being that, you know, we think of uh, what's going on with Google Translate, what's going on with Deep Blue or Watson as something fundamentally different from human intelligence because it doesn't seem to events any actual sort of understanding. It just seems to be a different sort of thing. Uh, 
but we can't really be sure that the way that we think is really much different. Maybe we're just better at it, and we can't see that that's what we're doing. So that, that's one thought, that perhaps computers will get to the level of human intelligence. Perhaps they'll, they'll become indistinguishable from human intelligence by moving along the path that they're already on, uh, that just farther down this same road lies true intelligence in machine form. I don't think I believe that. I think that uh, I don't really have a scientific reason for not believing that, other than just it seems a silly thing to believe. It seems completely wrong to me. And my intu intuition says, no, that's not right. Uh, I would imagine that the road we're on with artificial intelligence um, cannot get us to any sort of self-consciousness or emotion or true thought inside of a computer any more than uh, robust aerodynamics and really well-built airplanes are going to fly you to Mars. Uh, it just doesn't work that way because there's no air between mo most of the way between here and Mars. Um, so I think that within our lifetimes, we'll probably see amazing things done within the current model of artificial intelligence, because that is proven to be a very, very, very fruitful ground uh, for making new technology. But will we see anything that actually resembles, uh, anything that we could truly call intelligence, any sort of consciousness or emotion or, or whatever it is, whatever magic it is that makes us uh, call ourselves human. Will we ever see that in a machine? I don't know. I, I don't think it's coming anytime soon, though. Well, just so I understand what you were saying earlier, are you saying that if um, I carefully plan out ahead of time when to uh, hold my girlfriend's hand or kiss her for the first time, I should not tell her about it? You should not tell her about that. <laughs> she may find it weird. You should also not stalk oh, other couples in order to learn also how to Also a no-no, yes. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell you how much of this I've figured out by experience <laughs> and how much is conjecture, but I, I don't hey, recommend it. Hey, I've been there done that too. Like, <laughs> you guys are two peas in a pod. All right, I think we'll end it there. I will say, however, though, Will, I think it's fitting uh, that you ended the way you did there because – you stated that you basically don't understand why you don't think that uh, that we are like machines. You just have an intuition against it. And I think your intuition is something that a machine will never have, which is why I agree with you. Well, thanks so much, guys, for coming on the show. It was really fun to talk to you about this really interesting topic. Uh, maybe as the field gets a little more advanced over the next uh, few months and years, we can uh, revisit. So that'd be fun. But thanks so much for coming on. It was a joy to have you. Thank you. All right. We are back to wrap things up of season three, episode one. That's right. <laughs> um, we've had some positive feedback on our last episode, which was about Roe v. Wade and abortion. Right. But we are still open to more feedback. If you have constructive comments that you want to give us. Even can, or especially if you disagree with yeah, us. Yeah, even if it's – even yeah, even if you disagree with us, even if it's negative, we want to hear it. Um, you can still call our phone number, which is – Zach? <laughs> Se oh, uh, seven, I think it's 719 – Three five seven nine two two one. While you talk a little more, Sally, I'm going to double check. Okay, this. so you can call that number. You can email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And if you don't have feedback on that episode, give us feedback on this episode. What did you like or not like about the Oscars? How can I use my immersion blender when I'm not making soups anymore? And yes, I know that I can make soups when it's hot outside, but 
yeah. Anyways, what are other things that I can do with my immersion blender? We cold soups, right? Aren't there cold soups? There are, though that sounds a little weird to me, but maybe I could try that. We'll try it out maybe. So, yeah. okay, what's a non-soup thing that I could use my immersion blender for? And anything else you want to talk about? Artificial intelligence. Do you agree or disagree with some of the things we said? Do you think that we should allow artificial intelligence to take us into the age of Ultron. Right. <laughs> I don't know. All I'm just spitballing here. You're just vamping because yeah. I was looking up the number. Exactly. That is the correct number. Okay. So thanks Good. for covering so for me there, So that previous Sally. number was the number you should call. Yep, 719-357-9221. Leave us a message and we might play your message on the podcast. Yes. You can also tweet at us or twit, as I like to say, <laughs> which is at Vernacular Pod. You can see us on Facebook. At facebook.com slash Vernacular Podcast. And you can check out our new blog, which is new for season three, at Medium. If you're familiar with Medium, uh, medium.com. Our site is medium.com slash vernacular dash podcast. Unfortunately, Medium won't let you do one word blogs. So we are at vernacular dash podcast. But check us out there. You can also just go to our website, which is vernacularpodcast.com, and just click on blog, and it'll take you to the Medium blog. Right. So that's easy. Yep. So those are all the ways to reach us. Please do reach out. Let us know what you want to hear more about or what you've heard and want to engage on. So Yeah, and let us know if you want to be on the show. We've got some exciting guests coming up, but we're always looking for new ones. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us here at Vernacular Podcast. For Vernacular, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.